0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live. My name is Greg Robb. I'm at MarketWatch. I cover the Federal Reserve and I'm economics editor. And it's my pleasure, distinct pleasure today, to welcome to a conversation with Dr. Glenn Hubbard. Um, Dr. Hubbard was the Dean of the Columbia Business School and I know him also when he worked in Washington as the chief economic advisor to President George W. Bush. That's the younger Bush. And welcome today, Dr. Hubbard, good to see you. Likewise, thanks for having me. We have a half an hour and a lot, lot on the table, a lot going on, which is good for reporters. Um, but let's, let's get started. Inflation is the name of the game. How convinced are you that the Fed can get inflation down without causing a recession? I think
1: in principle, the Fed can do it, but I think it's unlikely. I mean, let's start with where we are. For a long time, the Fed referred to it as transitory, a word which has disappeared into oblivion. But I think what the Fed meant and likely still means is a belief it may go away on its own, that there's not... Too much tightening required. It's all supply chains. It's not all supply chains. Demand is growing too rapidly. Inflation has seeped through a number of sectors uh, of the economy and into wage bargains, too, all of which is a prelude to saying financial conditions need to tighten substantially. Can the Fed do that without causing a recession? Theoretically, yes,
0: but experience says likely not. So, You think they'll have the recession will come when rates get a little bit too high or, you know, they're going to have to explore that? Is that is that your scenario? Uh, It
1: it is. I think there's two issues. One is, of course, the rate tightening itself. The other is the uh, timing of an extent of quantitative tightening. I know there's sometimes a view the quantitative tightening is just the mirror of quantitative easing. The truth is, we don't really know. Uh, We don't have the experience Uh, And I suspect it may be bumpier. We also know that there is a correlation between shifts in risk-free rates that the Fed is influencing and risk premia on risky assets. And we also all know the old Wall Street adage that risk premia go down an escalator, but up an elevator. They can go up very, very fast. So I, I think this is going to be a very bumpy path and will require a lot of communication on the Fed's part.
0: This morning, Fed Chair Powell was testifying and he said uh, a couple of things of noteworthy, a quarter point rate hike coming in March. And then uh, I got the sense that he said uh, careful rate hikes to see how inflation does and if inflation looks ugly, maybe sometime later this year, the Fed will get more aggressive. I wanted to get your reaction to that kind of uh, playbook.
1: What I would have expected him to say, I, I think that the idea of a quarter point rate, height, in march was likely even before the Ukraine invasion by Russia. It's certainly uh, more likely now, and the chair has confirmed that. Uh, the more uh, questionable part is the timing on addressing inflation. Inflation is a problem, as I say, beyond supply chains, and the uh, un- the terrible events in Ukraine don't really take the need uh, to fight inflation off the table. An issue I would raise with Chair Powell's um, method of describing the problem is Milton Friedman's old adage that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. And so it's very difficult to have a wait till you see the whites of their eyes view
0: uh, of inflation. So I wish the Fed luck. Where did, where did the Fed go wrong last year? What, what, what since- You know, I know you said transitory, but what was it, do you think, that they were kind of overlooked?
1: Well, I think part of it was overlooking the very large fiscal stimulus that had been put into the economy uh, and forgetting that even if uh, Build Back Better never became law, which is what looks likely, there was still a lot of other fiscal stimulus built into the pipeline. So I I think that was underappreciated at the Fed. And I think that the demand pressures relative to supply were underappreciated by the Fed. And this view, again, the only sense I can make of the word transitory, and Chair Powell has as much said this, is that inflation would go away on its own, meaning it's all these temporary factors. I just don't think that was a correct reading of the data. I think that's where the policy error was. In addition, of course, there was a communication problem surrounding the change in procedures the Fed had done for average inflation targeting. That was never well understood by market participants or the
0: public. So I think there were a number of errors there. Was anything about QE lasting too long? Do you think that the the easing lasted too long there?
1: I do. Uh, In fact... Let's take the most obvious example in the housing market. So you have the housing market on fire, um, not just in coastal cities, but throughout the United States, even in markets that had not seen uh, booms before. Why we were continuing to buy mortgage-backed securities in that environment is beyond me, and why we would have continued any form of quantitative easing in a period where we had fiscal stimulus of that magnitude. I think the Fed got stuck on an autopilot of its own making, and perhaps inadvertently added fuel to the fire.
0: And of course, now we have the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. In in what way does that complicate the Fed's life, do you think? Well, in a number of
1: ways. Uh, The first of which is obvious on commodity uh, price increases and supply shocks. So the world is obviously focused on oil and gas from Russia, but, you know, Russia is very active in a number of industrial commodities, palladium, nickel, aluminum. So I would expect that supply disruptions, supply chain issues, uh, and even in some agricultural commodities like wheat will see very large price increases. That certainly complicates life for the Fed. I don't think it gives the Fed an off-ramp, though, for a strategy of combating inflation, but it does make it um, much noisier. The second area in which the Fed will be affected is the obvious financial market implications of sanctions uh, against Russia. You know, whenever you have a a world in which there's transactions that have been occurring, you have to assume that both parties in a transaction wanted it or they wouldn't have done it. So cutting them off is bound to have feedbacks. It's not that you quote, punish Russia and nobody else loses. The question is figuring out where those losses are going to be.
0: Some people have even said, use the term Lehman moment. There's a you know that there's a lot of securities out there that people are going to take losses on. What's your sense? Is that is that overstating it? A uh,
1: I don't think we really know, but my guess is it is overstating it in the sense that if you look directly at uh, Russian debt and equities and look at where they're held and the amounts. I think the losses are definitely uh, manageable to the extent there are dollar gaps in uh, counterparty issues. The Fed itself uh, may have to step in in dollars, but I don't think this is a a Lehman moment. The, The one sense in which it might be isn't so much financial, but more about public policy that we had been mispricing a security risk and, and treating it as if we didn't have to pay the price, meaning higher defense spending, security spending, private investments, whatever. I think we've realized that's wrong and that's going to be very costly I and mean, it will affect markets and the FISC and that's the closer to a Lehman moment.
0: I should re- remind everyone that please submit your questions and we will take questions from uh, listeners. So I really do appreciate that. Um, we have some already that have come in and, um, I just think on these sanctions to me that on the central bank, I think are breathtaking. I was just, you know, never having seen it covering central banks. Um, it just seems like another chapter in um, in central bank history. You know, this is a seminal moment. I was just wondering what your sense of that was and what what's your view on those? Well, I, I certainly accept your judgment that this
1: is, um, you know, way out of the line with not only experience but likely expectations of, of what might have happened. You know, on the one hand, if you've taken military response off the table, this is a very powerful um, means of uh, attacking the Russian economy. Having said that, the flip side of that is. What are the long-run consequences, both for financial transactions and commercial transactions, even for the payment system itself? Will parties decide that there may be other ways of clearing and settling that become a better idea? We don't know. So I can't second-guess whether that is or isn't the right uh, answer. I, I can say that despite Russia's protestations, to the contrary, it is working, and the sanctions will deliver devastating economic damage in Russia.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Hubbard is joining us today in part because he's just written a new book called The Wall and the Bridge, published by Yale University Press. And um, I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what the why you wrote the book and what the theme of it are.
1: Well, it's a great question. Uh, and, even tangentially related to the conversation we just had, you know, we take as given as business people or economists that openness is a good thing. Uh, openness to the world in trade and goods and services and ideas, we take as given that openness to technological advance uh, is a good thing. Uh, all the way back to Adam Smith at the founding of, of what today is economics, we've had that view here's the problem all those benefits of openness growth prosperity the sharing of information and goods there's that's like the head side of a coin the tail side of that very same coin and you cannot avoid it any more than you can with a coin having two sides is disruption and every time you have progress and growth through technology or globalization A number of individuals, communities, some entire nations can be disrupted. When you have disruption, there's a demand in the political process to do something about it. Politicians' most typical response, uh, even in democracies like our own, is walls. Let me protect you from change. It could be a physical wall. It could be anti-trade or anti-immigrant or limiting technological advance. The problem with that, as Adam Smith would have said centuries ago, is that it's going to make us poorer if we do that. And the better response isn't a wall, but a bridge. You know, a bridge takes you somewhere, it brings you back. We do not do enough to prepare people for the world in which we actually live with technological change and globalization. And all of our social insurance programs were designed for a world decades ago in which those changes weren't present. So there's a lot we can do. And if you look back at American history, we have done this. You know, during the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln manages to pull off land grant colleges, transcontinental railroad, homesteading, Franklin Roosevelt's GI Bill. We have been able to do this. And I think there are ways in the modern economy that we can. And if we cannot, I think we risk eroding social support for business, killing the
0: golden goose, as it were. Looking at last night, you know, President, let's look at President Biden's economic um, platform. And as he expressed last night, and we had the State of the Union message. I mean, there's walls and bridges in that speech, is in your mind? Well, I'd say there are
1: walls and some half bridges. <laughs> you know, the walls are, are easy. You know, buy Americans, sort of rhetoric is not inspirational. It doesn't lead to what we're talking about, nor does his rhetoric about uh, buy American, presage less inflation, which was the curious argument he seemed to offer. The bridge part is one that I'd hope for more. You know, For example, in my book, I talk about the ways in which community colleges are a great foot soldier for preparing people for the economy in which we live, whether it's certificates or degrees. Early on, the administration had a proposal, but it was for free tuition and free tuition doesn't give the resources to community colleges the intuition behind the old land grant college model was you need federal support a block grant to actually help these schools stand up the support we need so even where the administration's trying to build bridges they don't seem to work and they've walked back from them so i i think whether it was president trump or president biden we seem stuck with walls
0: yeah it's, it's tricky to did you you know, how do you fight inflation as a President Biden? Like, What should his, he seems kind of trapped a little bit. What should his response be when to this high inflation? Well, he, part of it is something he did do, which
1: is acknowledge the problem and that it needs to be addressed. That kind of communication is important and coming from a leader is important. But I think you have to remind yourself where inflation comes from. We're not experiencing Uh, an inflation problem because of gouging monopolies or oil producers or something like that. We're experiencing an inflation problem because we do have these supply pressures, but we've also goosed up demand to be growing faster than supply. And if you ask, well, what could the president do about it? You know, when you're in a hole, step one, stop digging. And so the idea of calling for additional stimulus at a time when demand is growing too fast doesn't seem to be
0: the right idea. We have a couple of questions that have come in, and I'll take the first one um, from Dalpat. And this says How far can the Fed hike interest rates before the Treasury's debt servicing exceeds 3% of GDP? Um, so, what, what are these higher rates will make life a little bit more difficult for the Treasury? They
1: will. I don't know all the numbers in my head, so I can't do the math for him but I, I can talk you through it for anybody who has the numbers in front of them uh you're right to focus on the treasury I know there is a view that the fed interest rate increases will lead to significant tightening of financial conditions because of private sector leverage and the fed won't have to go as far it's not really the private sector that has been on the big debt binge it's more the public sector and indeed some big borrowers in the private sector have termed their debt out into fixed-rate, longer-term debt. So the pain to the question is being borne at the Treasury. To me, this raises a political question of when does the pressure get very large on the Fed because of budgetary deterioration on the Treasury's part? And by the way, that's not just true in the tightening cycle. Uh, Let's suppose you believe that the long-term real interest rate, conservatively, were between 0 and 1%, which doesn't strike me as a crazy out-of-bounds number, and that inflation returned to the Fed's target at 2%, that says you're looking at 2 to 3% interest rates, which would be well above what the Treasury has been paying. And that, that's not assuming any kind of doomsday scenario. So we've had a long-term fiscal problem, and it's going to get worse. It was papered over in recent years by low rates, but the questioner's right. That's going to be where the rubber
0: meets the road. And we have a question from Andrew who said, what does what would the end game look like for, guess, the, Fed? for the Fed? Yeah.
1: Well, to have an end game means you have to know where victory is. I'm not 100 percent sure. If the end game is restoring inflation back to two percent, uh, that's going to take a while. Uh, because you do have both these supply and demand pressures. I suppose the Fed's desired result would be tightening is gradual, demand growth attenuates, and we slowly glide down till we hit our targets without a recession. I think that's a, that's a problem. The end games that strike me as a little more likely would be inducing a recession and or causing the kind of political turmoil, either from higher risk premia and a recession or a higher cost of the fisk uh, from borrowing. So this is definitely a tough time to be a central banker.
0: And Matt has a, wants to know if you put odds on a recession in the next 36 months.
1: Well, I mean, it's hard to know because conditional on what? So conditional hmm. on the path, I think the Fed feels it needs to take, I'd say the odds of a recession are relatively high. I do not think that we're looking at anything like a financial crisis recession. I think it's more a a mild recession, but I I think nonetheless the odds are pretty high. The cloudiness for anybody, of course, at the moment is the um, issue of domestic political concerns in the U.S. that we've talked about, but also the the geo uh, the geopolitical events and those are real wild cards
0: it, it seems now that the the trend in the, a lot of government it seems like the in the global economy there's a lot of trend towards author, authoritarianism and almost away from capitalism is that just because you know when times get tough people want simple answers is, what's your
1: well, actually, that is part of it. Political scientists who study populism emphasize that um, authoritarian regimes like centralized regimes generally, though, struggle in periods of economic change. You know, Going all the way back to Hayek's pioneering work in economics, we know that decentralized solutions offer a lot of value because people try, and experiment, some things work, some things don't. That's not really possible in an authoritarian uh, regime. I think, though, the authoritarian regimes also reflect a couple of other things. One, in the West, we have not done a good job at what I would call mass flourishing or mass participation, bringing everybody along in the economy, leaving large segments of the uh, population vulnerable to populist rhetoric because they don't see the economy as working for them, even though, in fact, it is in, in many ways. The other issue that I think is underappreciated in the rise of authoritarianism is the need to spend substantially more on defense and security than we do today. So after the Berlin Wall fell, after communism fell in the Soviet Union, we had what was called a peace dividend, meaning large amounts of money that were spent on defense and security spending could either be given back to taxpayers and lower tax burdens, or spent on more popular social programs. We live in a world in which that is a naive construct. Uh, that's why I referred to um, a few minutes ago that a potential Lehman moment here is the realization with what President Putin has done that we need to be spending more. And the problem in among NATO allies, whether it's the United States or it's European allies, we have stretched public finances. So that means tough choices. That means we're gonna have to raise taxes or we're going to have to cut something else to accommodate that. And I think that's what authoritarianism has put back on the table. So it's not just a bad guys, good guys. It's a very practical dollars and cents discussion that we need to have.
0: What can we do in this country about the persistence of poverty? Well, it's a great question. I I think the first and
1: foremost thing to do from an economic perspective, there are plenty of cultural issues too, but from an economic perspective is to really increase the readiness for work. If we think that work is transformational, both for individual dignity and for advancing in one's career, we need to massively support it for people whose skills aren't at the top. And the ways to do that are simple to say and hard to execute. It's increased preparation. That goes back to the skill discussion we were having, whether it's community colleges, training programs, whatever. But we also need to spend more money supporting work. The programs we have, like the earned income tax credit, could be doing more to support work than they do now, but there's no free lunch. It would require money. Or moving to programs like my colleague and Nobel laureate Ned Phelps have suggested of supporting work on the demand side that is giving wage subsidies to firms. But if we're serious about low wage work and uh, limiting, if not ending poverty, we've got to go there. And the truth is nobody who works full time should be poor. And we can accomplish that, but it isn't free.
0: And I, I assume you're, you want to stay away from, um, you know, giving people money just, uh, I, I forget the name of the
1: a uh, universal basic income. Yeah. yeah, I, I'm not a fan, and and it's not because I'm addicted to work, although that's probably true too. It's more that uh, it's not helping with mass participation. You know, going back to Smith and Enlightenment thinkers and goals for an economy, you want an all-in economy where everybody's in the boat, everybody's participating. Who would want to be told, you don't have what it takes to be part of this economy, so I'm just going to pension you off and give you money? That's not a way to promote flourishing and dignity. So I think everybody needs to be in, but we have to realize that we're going to have to help people do that. Where I think economists went off kilter a bit is we were a little too glib about how easy it would be to become attached to work and meaningful work. And I think we need much more support than we've been giving people in the past few decades
0: another idea that has kind of dazzled people is this modern monetary theory the sense that the u.s can you know I know it's hard to sum up but that the. US can kind of run larger deficits all things being equal I was just it's it's always hard to get at it and I was wondering what your how you talk to your students about it. That's a great question. It's not particularly modern in the sense
1: that Abel Lerner in the 1940s had a functional finance theory that's essentially this, that um, you could use money finance to pay for a budget and then you would use the tax system to true up if inflation got out of hand, which is essentially what uh, modern monetary theory uh, is arguing that doesn't really work. You're substituting a political process in the Congress for a highly technocratic, apolitical federal reserve. That doesn't strike me uh, as a very good trade. And we've certainly seen what has happened in the recent period of, you know, very large and unchecked federal spending. Uh, we, we've seen significant inflationary pressures. So, you know, there's no sweet spot that says you can just painlessly conduct um fiscal finance, which is, you know, what your Econ 101 professor told you, life is about trade-offs, and he or she told you the truth.
0: Hang on. I have We have a lot of questions that have come in, and I'm going to take them one at a time here. Um, I, 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 Martin says to you, I agree with your comments on the risk going forward. Why did the markets not see this coming?
1: Very good question. You know, the Queen of England famously asked that question in the financial crisis. And I think what she meant when she talked to economists is how, how can there be really big if slow moving things that you guys don't seem to catch? And I think this is one of them. It, it's a bit like um, in a financial market analogy, a peso risk problem, you know, that you think there's just a small probability of something. And you price it in a little, but not a lot. And then all of a sudden, the risk materializes. And I think that's what we're, we're living here. There, the rise of authoritarianism meant that we needed to be spending more on insurance, quote unquote, meaning defense and security, uh, than we were. Uh, and that is probably the longest lasting cost of this. Um, the effects of the sanctions may be limited in the near term or the commodity price fluctuations but we're going to be entering a world in which both firms and governments have to pay much higher costs uh, than they did before, much as was the case after 9-11, and that's a wake-up call. So 224 may pose the same kind of wake-up call at 9-11.
0: Catherine asks, will higher interest rates impact the necessary and accelerating transition to a low-carbon economy?
1: It's a good question. Don't think so. I think there are enormous investment opportunities uh, in low-carbon technologies, and costs have come down a lot. And so this is a live conversation. The flip side that I I think we all have to remember, though, is whatever our ultimate goals are for a low-carbon economy, there's going to be a period of time in which we're going to have to invest in the carbon economy, meaning we cannot fail to do maintenance capital expenditures of existing oil and gas and other um, fossil fuels in a period where we still need the energy so i i don't think there's going to be an enormous effect but i'd hate for us to say well
0: let's just rush to that and and forget fossil fuels another question from Hal, and he says if if not by government spending how do you address the issue of income inequality and the economic suffering despair of low-income people in a wealthy society? I guess we kind of got at that, but maybe. Well, I, I, I agree
1: with the question. So i say we don't have to have a situation where people who are working are poor, we just don't. But what it means is we would have to spend more on preparation and on work supports. And by the way, the net costs of that spending is nowhere near what the gross cost is because we are already spending money to take care of people. This would be translating some of that spending toward, toward work. I, I'm less vexed by inequality per se. I mean, the fact that somebody's a billionaire, I I don't lose sleep over that. But I do lose sleep over people who don't have opportunity. And I think that's really the right place for public policy to focus.
0: I'm a little bit worried that your prescriptions will take a longer time to get going. I mean, so, you know, we'd have to do something. How do we bridge that gap?
1: I think we can get going fast. I mean, I... Notice that while it's a great idea to completely revamp K through 12 education, not what I talk about in the book. I try to pick things like community colleges, looking at public-private partnerships that have worked, at work supports, things that are in the here and now we can do if we're committed. We need both leadership and the willingness to spend the money on them. And I agree, those may be heavy lifts. But I think that the idea that this is as hard as reforming K through twelve or something like that—that that I don't buy. We can we
0: can do this. There's a question from Neil. He says, "How interchangeable is the discipline of economics with the law? Have they become so intertwined that a lawyer is now more qualified to run the Fed than an economist?"
1: Well, whoever's qualified to run the Fed is a decision the president makes. I, I don't think the issues whether somebody's an economist or a lawyer, as much as it is whether he or she is open to ideas and intellectual challenge. Ideally, if you take the Board of Governors or the FOMC, you should see a diversity of training backgrounds and perspectives, whether the chair happens to be an academic economist, a business person, a lawyer, strikes me as less important than that, as long as the chair has a willingness to listen and, and good judgment. I don't think economists and lawyers are that close, though. I, I've i never dreamt of going to law school, and my guess is most lawyers don't want to do what I do either.
0: <laughs> Here's a question uh, from an MMT supporter. He says, in discussing MMT, why focus solely on spending, ignoring tax cuts that generate large deficits that do not increase tax revenues, increasing the deficit?
1: Well, the, if I'm, if the question is, you know, if you're cutting taxes too much and the deficit's too high, yes, that's a problem, but that would be a problem out of MMT too. You you need to have long-term fiscal balance. And part of the problem we have in the country is that, you know, we haven't come to agreement as to a willingness to pay for what we seem to want. So we have a set of social spending programs. I've argued that we need to spend more on defense and other public goods as well. i also argued in my book, The Need for Spending on Preparation and Other Kinds of Social Insurance. If we want to do all of the above, we're going to have to raise taxes. There's no way out of it. It's just arithmetic. It's not even economics. If we don't want to raise taxes, then we have to make some choices between social programs, investments in human capital and defense. And
0: that's what we'll have to do as a political body comment from George, I guess, maybe a question. He says, appreciate Mr. Hubbard's historical references and reflection that the Fed has limited power to control inflation. Is that what you were
1: saying? I know the Fed could control inflation. My question is, you know, at what cost? Hmm. The Fed can both engineer inflation and control it. The question is whether it makes mistakes in either of those directions. I think it made a bit of a mistake in getting to where we are and I think it could make mistakes in going back, but no. If the Fed wants to control inflation in the long run, it definitely can.
0: What's your view on the 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 level? We should talk specific. Sometimes I don't about the ten-year Treasury yield. It's it's been so low, and and we're always seems to be talking about the risk of an inversion on the curve. Um,
1: well, the one-year forward swaps are telling us that kind of inversion is likely. If your question is um, in the longer term, does the 10 year yield make sense? I would have to separate that into two buckets. So the first bucket is in a world where there's a lot of central bank intervention in the 10 year, it's hard to know what to think about supply and demand because we're not looking at market outcomes. But if you're taking that out, uh, again, I go back to the math I did before. If I think a real rate of interest is somewhere between zero and one, and I think that um, inflation is 2% or a little higher, it tells you where the 10-year ought to be by market forces.
0: What's your view on the Fed's inflation target of 2%? Is that a good level for you? and Or some people think it should be a little bit higher.
1: Well, initial conditions do matter. And so it is 2%. And the question is, what's the gain from telling the public you want it to be three when you struggled for a long time, even hit two, and then you overdid it and you've hit way above three. So I'd be a little more nervous about that. I think the important thing is to set up a monetary policy that delivers. I mean, the the reason for 2% largely goes back to some old work from the Boskin Commission decades ago, looking at price deflators and the measurement errors, concluding that if you had something like 2% inflation, you're closer to um, you know, neutrality. Uh, that's been revised in thinking somewhat, but I don't see an argument for moving much off 2%. I mean, if we were starting fresh, I think anything is possible, but asking the Fed to change that in a period where it's less than credible now, I, I'm not sure
0: that's a good idea. And you, we spoke earlier about the Fed's framework new framework on average inflation targeting is maybe being a factor in the high inflation we're seeing now. Are are you a fan of that framework, or do you think it'll have to be revised?
1: I would give you a classic economist answer on the one hand. On the other hand, so I think what the Fed was thinking when it articulated the framework was something closer to price level targeting, so that if I undershoot on inflation. I overshoot. And they just, since the public may not follow what that is, but they know the word inflation, why not talk about average inflation? So I think that's how we got there. Having said that, over what horizon? So average over when and what and how, I, I just think the Fed never explained the framework. So I don't think it was much of a framework Uh, for the public. And then when it became clear that the Fed was continuing an accommodative monetary policy at a time when fiscal policy was extremely accommodated and inflationary pressures were building, and you had economists on both sides of the aisle saying, wait, 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 wait. I I think that should have
0: been a wake-up call. We have time for one more question, and I appreciate all your time. Regarding Russia and China from Michael, do you believe we are entering a new phase of global supply relationships, a new Cold War, resulting in the bifurcation of global supply chains, whereby we move away from globalization towards Western friendly supply chains?
1: I think that was likely even before the invasion uh, of Ukraine. If you just think about the conflict between the United States and China, over technology and standards and general economic philosophy. So, I, I hope we don't, because everyone loses. You know, when you have a collection and you pull something out, again, this goes back all the way back to Smith, that failure of openness uh, hurts us all. But I, I do think that's where we're headed. The trick will be to make um, our regional presence and regional partners as large as possible, meaning from a US perspective strong economic relations in the european union from our south american neighbors uh, and also our non-china partnerships in in asia that would be economic job one i would think
0: i can't resist these questions are coming in fast and furious what taxes would you raise richard asks
1: well i would if
0: i were king I would start by reforming the
1: tax system. So in other words, I think it would be easier to have a higher tax burden if the US had a different tax system, meaning consumption taxes are much less distorting than our income taxes. So I think given that, you know, just slip into econ, speak a minute, deadweight losses from taxes rise with the square of the tax rate, taking distorting taxes we now have and raising them further is not a particularly good idea. But moving to a consumption tax, I think, would permit uh, larger tax receipts. And in fact, if you look at European governments that have much larger governments, it's because of consumption taxes. They don't finance those with high income
0: taxes like in the U.S. And for people interested in reading about economics, the first place to start is Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Exactly. But also not to forget that the same Adam Smith, wrote The
1: Theory of Moral Sentiments almost two decades before, which is about empathy and bringing everyone in the boat. So Smith, too, is a coin with two sides.
0: All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you very much, Dr. Hubbard. I appreciate it so much. Tomorrow, please join us on Barron's Live. They have news feature editor Jeffrey Kane and healthcare industrial reporter Josh Nathan-Kazis will discuss the outlook for healthcare stocks and the latest news on the COVID-19 treatment vaccine and the outlook for the pandemic. And um, thanks again for listening today. Please stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.